Matthew 17 is our text. We continue to study through the Gospel of Matthew together. Matthew 17. This week, Alex and I had the opportunity to talk with a very likable young Jewish man and uh, his Muslim friend. (laughs) It was quite the interesting conversation. Um, And at one point in the conversation, um, the Jewish man said, we were talking about the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices. And and the guy said, you know, we still do that. And and I said, what? Where? (laughs) Because, of course, the Lord ordained that animal sacrifices be done in where? In the temple at Jerusalem, in the tabernacle. And I think he, he started laughing. I think he realized his mistake and uh, assumed that I'd made the statement as a sort of a gotcha. But it really is true. Um, this was the one place the Lord ordained for these sacrifices to take place. The temple was destroyed. And we realize that Jesus was the Messiah, that He was the Christ, that He is the new temple that his body was the final sacrifice for sin, to which all other sacrifices just pointed. All those lambs, they never took away sin. All those bulls, they never covered sin. It was the sacrifice of Christ. And my heart just went out to him and to so many whose eyes are just blinded to that. They read the Holy Scriptures of God and don't see what it's all about. As Paul said, even now a veil remains over their eyes. But may the Lord in His mercy lift it for many. Well, what he hit on though was a sort of a tension that comes up between Jesus and the unbelieving Jews of His day. Um, they saw Jesus as being in tension with the whole law and with the the temple in particular. In fact, he said things that, I don't know, gave them pause uh, to wonder um, and, and created fuel for the accusations that they would level against him at the end in his trial that he is out to destroy our temple. And this text that we're going to look at is a pretty intriguing example of that kind of conversation. And and I think it helps us to realize more clearly who Jesus is. But before we even get to that, um, we once again see Jesus predicting his death and his resurrection beginning in verse number 22. And this is the second prediction that Jesus has made, um, the second of three clear predictions of His crucifixion that He will make on His way down to Jerusalem where He will spend His last days. So verses 22 and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him and He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Jesus clearly predicted three things that would take place. One, that He would be delivered into the hands of men. 
The word delivered here is the same word that's translated in chapter 10, verse 4, betrayed. He is going to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. This then is the first time that Jesus makes explicit to his disciples that he that his death will be precipitated by a betrayal of one of his followers. They will deliver him into the hands of men. I don't know if you've ever been betrayed in some sense or another, betrayed by someone. You know the the pain that that brings, the shock that you feel, the anger that often comes, sometimes the questioning of God. God, where are you? What are you doing? Are you letting this happen to me? And perhaps it would be helpful for us this morning just to remember where was God in Jesus' betrayal. Judas is clearly the responsible party. He is guilty before Almighty God for his act of treachery, and he stands condemned. And the Bible says that it was Satan that actually put this into his heart, John 13, verse 2. And yet we are reminded that all along this was, in fact, God's plan, right? This betrayal of Jesus was no shock to God as if God was saying, oh, great, what do I do now? The Lord Himself predicted this. This was a part of the plan and the purpose of God from the beginning. And I want to remind you that so is every betrayal and every injustice and every evil that you experience in the world. This is not to say that God is the immediate author of sin by no means but rather to emphasize with our Lord that even betrayals are a part of the outworking of the good plan of God for His glory and the benefit of His people. God ordained this betrayal for the ultimate good of His people. And we are told in the Scripture that we know that all things work together for the good of God's people to those who are the called according to His purpose. That means every hurricane and every premature death and every bit of evil in the world, evil as it is. And it's not right to say, well, it's not really evil. It is evil. But yet to recognize as Christians that there is a God who superintends all of the evil actions of men in this world to bring about, to sovereignly bring about his own good ultimate ends for his people. And I don't know of any better example in all of Scripture than to look at the cross of Jesus Christ, which was at once the act of wicked and hostile men fighting against God, and at the same time the act of the predetermined counsel and plan of God from before all of eternity, which ought to give us some encouragement, I think, when we face betrayals and we wonder where God is. Our Lord predicted that this, in fact, would happen, that He would be betrayed, that He would secondly be killed. And, of course, that's in obedience. It's obedience to the Father's plan. It was God's will 
that he should suffer and die. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, Isaiah predicted hundreds of years before. And he obeys the Father's will. Don't think it for a moment that this is something other than an act of pure obedience by Jesus. He said, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down of my own will. His will in submission to the determined counsel of God to provide salvation so that we might enter into God's presence. He predicted to his followers, I will be betrayed and I will lay down my life. The Son of Man will be killed. And then thirdly, he predicted that he would be raised to life again on the third day. And I want to remind you that that is your destiny too if you are in Christ Jesus. We sing, What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when He comes. The Lord predicts this great and glorious end, and yet, once again, it's like the disciples don't even hear that last part. Because it says, they were greatly distressed. The suffering is all that they heard. The Messiah will be betrayed. He's going to die. And they're just distressed. And honestly, put that into parallel into how you think about life. When we experience the suffering of this present life, it's often so dominates our thinking that it practically obscures our vision of the age to come. And all we can see is the terrible present, just like these disciples. You know, once they heard suffering now, they, 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 they stopped listening. Brothers and sisters, keep listening. Keep looking. Keep seeing. Keep believing. Keep telling yourself that you are living for more than just now. More than just this present evil age, you are living in the age to come. And one day that age will become a full and consummate reality for all who are God's people's brothers. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. Sisters, look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Suffering continues for a night, but joy will come in the morning. It will for every believing person. So Jesus and his disciples are making their way back down through Galilee. They're headed down ultimately to Jerusalem. Jesus will spend his final days there. But first, they stop on their way in the town of Capernaum. And this is one of the hubs of Jesus' ministry, as most of you know. This is a place, a a town on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, where tradition says that Peter had a home, where his family had a home. In fact, you can go and still visit his home today. It's covered by a huge uh, uh, covering to keep it from uh, rotting away in the elements. And this is where Jesus and his disciples spend a couple of nights, apparently, And uh, it's there probably at Peter's home itself where Jesus is confronted by some Jewish customs officials. And 
you know, when you read this, it's a head scratcher at first. You're trying to figure out why did God put this in the Bible? What is this here for? And I remind you that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for God's people. But this seemingly insignificant interchange, nevertheless preserved by the Holy Spirit, recorded by Matthew, really has bigger implications than I think we might be aware of. I told my wife I felt like Martin Luther, um, who says in one place, when he discovered the gospel in the book of Galatians, he says at first it was obscure to him, or perhaps it was Romans, but he says at first it was obscure to him, the passage, what the passage was getting at. But he said, I beat importunately upon that place until finally the, the light of the glory of that passage broke upon him. And sometimes you have to do that with the Bible. You just have to keep beating upon it and thinking about it and meditating on it and th- examining other scriptures until finally it just sort of breaks open and you see, ah, maybe this is why God recorded this. And uh, that's what I hope to do uh, for us this morning. So let's read it. It's verses 24 to 27 in our text. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth collect that who from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, Well, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. You see what I mean? Like, what is going on here? There's tax collectors, there's this weird thing about kings, there's a fish, there's a shekel in the mouth, and what is all this supposed to be? And, you know, when you preach and teach the way we do for the most part here, you just take the next passage that comes. So sometimes you get the easy one and sometimes you get the head scratcher. But let's try to figure this out together. This puzzling interchange begins with a visit from the taxing authorities. And specifically, they're the collectors of the two drachma tax, Matthew says. And while some have thought that these were um, Roman taxes that are being collected, almost all Bible scholars today believe that the background for this is actually Exodus chapter 30 that we read earlier where the people of Israel were told to give a tax at every census for the support of the temple. Um, And it was a, um, uh, a half a shekel for the upkeep of the tabernacle. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a census taken and the temple tax collected at every year at Passover. And it was a commemoration. Of course, Passover was a commemoration of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, and so maybe it seemed an appropriate thing. I think we'll see later it's an appropriate thing that they would take the census and so collect the tax during the time of Passover. And apparently that's what's going on here. In fact, once Jesus 
um, eventually dies in Jerusalem, it'll be around the time of Passover. And so here are the tax collectors coming around to the towns to, um, to help collect the, uh, to the, collect the uh, temple tax. The price was specifically stipulated back in Exodus chapter 30, you probably remember, that he said, a half a shekel, no more, no less. If you're rich, no more. If you're poor, no less. It was a half a shekel for every person 20 years old and older. Now, a Jewish shekel was the same as four Greek drachmas, or a, and a drachma was like a denarius. We've read, we've seen that in the scriptures before. We usually think of a denarius as a, approximately a kind of a day's wage for an average uh, worker. So four Greek drachmas make a shekel. So a two drachma tax is a half a shekel, or roughly two days' wages for common workers. And when when you when you went to the temple, you could pay your tax in person in the temple, um, and you had to pay with a special temple currency, which is why there were money changers in the temple, because remember he said you'd have to pay with this special um, temple coin. And so you would exchange, and, and of course, that'll become a big deal later on when Jesus interacts with those money changers. But um, here you could also um, make your payment uh, to these um, representatives. So uh, they, the question they put to Peter is, now, does your teacher not pay this tax? And he answered, yes, yes, he does, of course. And whether or not that's what Jesus would have actually done, um, or whether Peter was just you know, making one of his typical impetuous kind of statements. We really don't know. But we do know what actually did happen, and that is that Jesus used this discussion um, and turned it into an opportunity to make a theological point. So Peter comes back in the house after having this discussion with the tax collectors, and Jesus questioned him before he could even say anything, I don't know if Jesus just knew what was in his mind, or maybe he overheard, but Jesus comes to him first. He says, Simon, from whom do the kings of the world take taxes? From their own family, their own sons, or from others? And he said, well, from others. And Jesus said, then the sons are free. Now, however much you know, it might impugn our democratic sensibilities to think of this, um, I think historically it was probably pretty commonplace for kings and rulers to tax their subjects, but to exempt their own families. Even today in a lot of the world, if you are related to the guy in charge, you have a lot of perks that most of the ordinary citizens of the country don't get, right? And this is just the way life is. And so Jesus is using this as an illustration to make a point um, that the king, he doesn't charge his own family. Now, with regard to the temple, who is its ruler? Well, who's the ruler of God's temple? Well, no human being could claim that title. The ruler, in this case, would have to be who? God himself. And so... If that's true, then who are the sons who are exempt? Well, the obvious reference is to Jesus himself, who just a few verses earlier heard the voice of God come out of heaven that said, You are my beloved son. So, this is a reference to Jesus himself. He 
is the Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 12, verse 8. He is the one who said, guys, something greater than the temple is here. Pointing to himself. And so this passage is about who Jesus is. This is a Christological passage. He is the one and only Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. But he does speak about sons, plural. And he so, in fact, he seems to include Peter later when he talks about those who should be exempt from this tax. And the reason for that, the reason that he speaks in the plural, includes Peter, is this. That in the gospel, everything that is Christ's is his people's. Everything that Jesus is, he is for his people. That is, he is for all those who believe. So Jesus is the one and only Son of God, right? Unique and one of a kind. There is no other Son of God like Jesus is. He is the only begotten from the Father. And yet, the Bible can speak of the fact that through Jesus, God is bringing many, what? Sons into glory. This is the way the gospel works. This is the gospel. The gospel is this, that everything that Christ has belongs to those who are united to him. And so we are in Jesus Christ, sons of God, in Jesus Christ are free in our ability to enter into the presence of God. In Jesus Christ, we have all of the blessings that we have. This is the heart of the gospel. You know, most people today think that the gospel is, you know, you try to be a good person, you live a good life, you try to be as as good as you can, maybe your good deeds will outweigh your bad, and if so, you might make it to heaven. Or if you don't make it to heaven, maybe you'll make it to the halfway place where you can work some more and finally make it to heaven. But the gospel is this. The gospel is that there is only one person who was ever what God wanted him to be. There is only one son in whom the Father is well pleased. And the only way that you will ever be a son or daughter of God is to be united to that son by faith. Everything in the gospel is because of Jesus Christ. Christ is the gospel. He is the good news. And so, the sons of God include not only the Lord Jesus Christ, but all who are united to Him. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of of everything that the temple stood for. The temple was God's holy place. It was the place where God would come and make His presence, His almighty presence known, where God dwells. And what does the New Testament say about Jesus Christ in the book of Colossians? It says that in Him dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the fulfillment of everything that the temple foreshadowed. In fact, John says that Jesus came and literally the word is tabernacled with us. He was the tent of God, the meeting place of God on earth, was in the person of Jesus Christ. Man can have communion with God, Through Christ, just as if you wanted to commune with God, you went to the Old Testament tabernacle, you went to the temple 
so you could be near God, so you could be made right with God. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And when you got to the temple, as we sang this morning, if you were a you got to the temple, you were not allowed entrance. There were angels with flaming swords sewn into the curtains of the temple to show you that this is like the Garden of Eden, God's holy place, and sinners don't have any right to be there. And so you stopped. And the only way that you could have access to God was through your representative. And you sent your representative into the temple. That was your priest. The high priest of God was able to go all the way into the Holy of Holies and stand representing the people before God. And that, my friends, is what Jesus Christ is. For all who believe in Him, He is the representative who is able to enter into the very throne room of heaven and to bring you and I into the very presence of God through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. The temple was the only place where sacrifices could be offered. God said those sacrifices must be offered in the place that I will choose to set my name. And He chose this temple mount in Jerusalem. There the sacrifices were offered, and only there the sacrifices that could cover and atone for sin. And what Jesus Christ is saying as He sees Himself as the fulfillment of that temple is to say that I Myself am the ultimate final sacrifice. To where there is no more need for any more lambs or any more bulls or any more goats because I have been sent by the Father to lay down my own life for my people. Later, the disciples would be looking at the temple. I mean, the stone temple. And they would say, Jesus, this is an amazing place. Look at, look at the beauty of this house. And Jesus would say, this temple is going to be destroyed. And in three days, I will raise it up again. What is he saying? But that he himself is the fulfillment of all of that picture. All of that was, was like, a, was like a, a structure that's now torn down so you can have the real thing. It was like scaffolding that you put up to erect a building. And when the building is built, what do you do with the scaffolding? You don't continue to, to look at the scaffolding. You take the scaffolding away because now you have the building. And that's what Christ says He is. He is the true building. And we each are living stones united to Christ and so become a dwelling place for God Almighty in the person of His Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of everything that the temple stood for. No wonder He was jealous for the purity of the temple because it pointed to Him. No wonder He went twice into the temple and cleansed the temple, drove out those money changers. He would predict, in fact, the destruction of the temple and the establishment of a new covenant in His blood. A day when people don't worship on Mount Gerizim or on Mount Zion either, but they worship God in spirit and in truth. And the writer of Hebrews would say, speaking of a new covenant, he said, He makes the first covenant obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, the days of the earthly temple were numbered 
because now there was a new temple. There was a better temple, a true temple. And I think finally, if we go back to the Old Testament background, I think we'll see most clearly the significance of this puzzling exchange with the tax collectors. So perhaps hold your finger here or a marker and go back to the passage we read earlier, which is in Exodus chapter 30. Exodus 30. Because this is the background for this exchange. This is the institution of the temple tax. If you see it down in verse 11 and following, the census tax or the temple tax. This is the institution of that tax, which was to be collected every time there was a census. In Jesus' day, that was done yearly around the time of Passover. But here's what I want you to see. The significance of that census was in what it was called. Notice verse number 12 of the passage. Exodus 30, verse 12 when you take a census of the people of Israel, you then each shall give a what? A ransom for his life to the Lord. And if you look down in verse 15, you'll see another term that's used to describe this temple tax. He says, The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make what? Atonement for your lives. Then he says in the next verse, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it to the service of the tent of meeting. This temple tax was referred to as a ransom. You know what a ransom is? That's the price that you pay for your freedom. It's the price that was paid to set something free, to to buy it out of the marketplace often used of slaves. They were ransomed. They were bought out of their slavery. The word atonement, what does that mean? This temple tax is referred to as an atonement. The word atonement means a a covering for sin, an appeasement of the wrath of God because sin is being blocked out. It's being covered up. So what is he saying here? When you offer this temple tax, you are paying for your salvation because you're giving God an atonement, you're giving God ransom. Are you paying for salvation? God forbid. This payment was a mere token. I mean, it was what, a couple of days wages? This is like thinking of this in terms of earning your salvation. It's like saying, God, I'll give you 20 bucks when you owe him everything that you've earned your entire life plus some. This is no payment for Uh, salvation. Anyone who thinks that they can earn their way to heaven by anything that they give to God or do for God grossly underestimates the debt of their sin. Listen, grace has always been the free gift of God. Salvation has never been by anything that we've given to God or anything that we've done. Isaiah says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, the waters of life. He who has no money Come, buy, and drink. How do you buy something with no money? Because it is a gift that's already been paid for. That's what God offers to His people. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the 
gift of God, not of your own works. It's not of anything that you've given, anything that you've done, anything that you could be, anything like that. This is not what this is about. So then why does he call it a ransom? Why is this payment a ransom payment? Why is this an atonement payment? And the key, I think, is in verse 16, still in Exodus chapter 30. Because in verse 16 he says, Do this that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord. This token offering was a reminder. It was a memorial that looks back to their ransom from Egypt. And I ask you, what was the price that was finally in the end paid for Israel to get out of Egypt? What was the, what was the ultimate cost? In the end, it was the death of the firstborn. But Israel escaped without losing their sons. They went free in every sense. How is that? Because God paid the ransom. God gave a substitute. He made an atonement through a lamb whose slaughter would take the place of the slaughter of Israel's sons. And the blood of that lamb was put, as we read, on the doors of their homes so that when the destruction came through the land, that the Lord would pass over the homes wherever He saw the blood. Every year at Passover, there was to be a remembrance of that. And this census tax, and by the way, this word remembrance was first used in connection with the Passover. And now here it is being used in connection with this census tax that is being given. It's another form of remembrance when Israel is reminded of the price of their freedom that's already been paid so that now they could belong to God. And friends, this all, even the temple tax, points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter reminds us, listen to this, that you were ransomed, same word, you were ransomed not by the futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but you were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that you are not your own because you were bought with a price. And that price was the death of God's own firstborn son. And so now here it is in Jesus' day, Passover season again, All of this should be in their minds. And Jesus is in effect saying, the temple tax was all about me. (laughs) Just like the whole of the Old Testament was about me. So how is it that you want to charge the very one to whom the taxes pointed? God's one and only son. It is 
He who would pay the price for them. It is He who would construct a new temple at the cost of His own life. In the place of Israel's firstborn sons, God gave His firstborn so that the whole nation now may be called God's son. And God's own son became their ransom and their atonement so that when they put the blood on the doors, it was pointing the way to that blood-soaked cross that would come all of those hundreds of years later. And when they commemorated that ransom with the payment of the atonement money in the temple tax, they were really pointing the way to the one who paid the price on their behalf so that they might enter that true temple not made with hands so that they might be the sons of God without any payment of their own but through the sovereign provision of God alone. And that may be why the story ends the way it does with this strange thing about going and catching a fish and there's a coin in the fish's mouth, right? Such an unusual means of supplying this tax. Did they not have two days' wages amongst them? Well, perhaps not. But I think there's more to this than that. I think it's more than just that the disciples were broke at that time. We know that they had some funds. We know also that they didn't have a lot, but they had some. What is the purpose of this? I think the purpose is to show that God will provide by Himself alone. This is not something that they're providing for, ultimately, their way into God's presence. In fact, God showed them even in the Old Testament. Remember when they finally got to building the tabernacle and Moses said, okay, here's the way we're going to do it. We need lots of gold, silver, bronze. We need a bunch of fine linen to make this beautiful thing. So on everybody who's willing, bring and, and bring what you have and we're going to use this to make the tabernacle. And I ask you, where are these pack of slaves got all this gold and silver and all this fine linen and everything. Right? We read it this morning, didn't we? No doubt, this was part of the plunder of, of the Egyptians, those who were outsiders, as it were, because the sons go free. The sons do not pay their way. The price has been paid for them. They're set free. Even their tabernacle was built by the Almighty God Himself, not by anything that they contributed of their own. And so God is showing, even through this crazy sort of provision, apparently, that happened, uh, that, that, that this is the work of God. So that any of us who are able to enter the true temple of God, enter not because of anything that we contribute in the least, but through God's own sovereign provision and grace. The sons are free so that in the end, Paul might say that it is from him and through him and to him all things. So to him be glory forever. And God's people said, Amen, that's the way it ends. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. And I pray that you would lift our eyes up onto the Lord Jesus. And if there is anyone here today, Father, who is laboring to earn their way into heaven, to pay for their own sins by acts of goodness, Lord, deliver them from that. Help them to look to Jesus who alone paid so that we might be your sons, that we might be free and enter into the Holy of Holies, into heaven itself. Lord, open our eyes now. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to love Him. In His name we pray. Amen.